you are now tuned into the Creeperama podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Justin. And I'm James. And this week, we'll be covering the 1976 slasher, The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Also in this episode, we'll be covering The Town That Dreaded Sundown. Which is a totally different movie. Hell, it's a totally different reality. Yeah, it actually takes place in real reality. Well, not real reality, because it's still a movie. The base material is based in real reality, but this is movie reality. Yeah, what you just said. The movie reality is based off real reality. And the reality in the remake, well, it's not really a remake, because it's based in a reality where the original movie is in this reality, which is separate from the not-remake reality. Hold on, remember, it's not a remake. Yeah, I just said not a remake. Right, it's a sequel to the original, which took place... In that movie reality. Hold on, hold on. What? So the real. You know what? Fuck it. Just start the fucking episode. Creatures from the world of the undead. The most bizarre. Devil worship. Satanism, black magic, or witchcraft. Zodiac killer. All lights go out and the monsters are released from their coffins. Now, prepare yourself for the most gruesome and grotesque experience of them all. The Creepy It's funny, actually, most of the the notes that I took while I was watching the original Town That Dreaded Sundown, or not even the original, the first movie, mm-hmm. most of my notes that I ended up taking revolved around just the craziness of the 1970s. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The film itself is so strange and oddly put together. I guess that's it's not a bad thing. I, I really dig the movie, but it's so funny to me that the beginning of the movie is so intense. Yeah, it's fucking weird, man, because it goes from them being brutally, intensely fucking murdered to what happens if we put a camera on Boss Hogg of the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, and and when I was watching this, so many so many parts of the movie made me feel like I was watching the same type of comedy elements as Smokey and the Bandit. Before we even get real deep into that, uh spark plug that's the director. Yeah, yeah, which I didn't know that the first time I saw this movie ages I ago. Didn't, I didn't either. I didn't yeah. know that until it was, like, in, in whatever I was watching, and it was like, that's him. And I was like, what? Hold on. Right. What is it? I don't know what it says about a director that he casts himself as the lamest character in the entire thing, but he's, like, a focal point. Right. And I also found out that the guy who plays the sheriff... He was the one who created the ending of this movie because yeah. Charles yeah, yeah, yeah. Pierce didn't have an ending yeah. when they started making the movie. Yeah, Andy, Andy Prine seems like a character. Yeah. I mean, he nailed it. I love the ending. Yeah, I the, think ending the ending's, ending's better than most of the, the, like, I like all the killings. I like all, the, all those parts. I don't love most of the, like, interstitial stuff, slapsticky, like. Yeah. It was very difficult for him to obviously pick a tone of what he wanted yeah. the overall movie to be. And I think one of the things that he was trying to do, I may be wrong on this, but I think he was trying to figure out a way to maybe balance the intensity with lightheartedness. You know, it's it's been one of the things that's really absolutely fascinated me about this movie. So I tried to, I purposely was like, I want to see if there's anything that goes into it. And yeah. there's not. The stuff that's behind the scenes, they just, like, it's a normal part of a movie. So I don't, I don't know. Uh, contextually, I, I hadn't seen Legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah, I still haven't watched that. It's a, it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up really liking, uh, old Disney live action stuff. 
mm-hmm. like nature documentaries, I guess, or like where the red fern grows, where it's like a right. lot of like nature shots, and then there's somebody with a with a calming voice speaking over it. Right, it's that. That's so strange. <laughs> but also, there's a Sasquatch that murders people. I guess I I was seeing a lot of mentions of how. Legend of Boggy Creek was basically the the film that kicked off like pseudo documentaries, things yeah. that eventually inspired, obviously things like like Blair Witch. Oh, it's one hundred percent like it's the the primordial soup that all other documentary movies came from. But in turn, then it also means that Disney is where the documentaries right. all came from because it's clearly like I almost wonder if he was like I really want to work for Disney, right? <laughs> Maybe this will get their attention. I'll just have a Sasquatch rip some lady's face off or something. I don't know. Is it? Ha- does it have any gore? I'll let you know when I finish it. <laughs> I mean, I got to a part where it was interesting and like it looked like it was turning into a real horror movie. Apparently, it made a lot of money when it came out. I can see that. It's hard for us to look back purely because we have so many other points of reference now mm-hmm. that... I get what they were doing, but it doesn't affect me. And that's yeah, of how course. I, like, sometimes it does. Yeah. Uh, this one just doesn't. Then again, I don't really like Blair Witch, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember seeing it in theaters opening night, and mm-hmm. it's okay. You know, I was like 14 at the time, and I saw a midnight showing of it, and everyone lost their fucking shit. And I was just like, I'd already seen way scarier shit. Yeah, me too. So it didn't, it just didn't like, land. Like, it's just a bunch of kids' faces on, on yeah. really close up in black and white. And, like, it's fine. And then there's no payoff. The end of it, he's just staring at a fucking wall. That's not an ending to a horror movie. The premise and the idea of it is great. It's yeah. an awesome idea for a movie. And and when I look back at it, some of the buildup and the concepts and the ideas and, and stuff were were pretty cool. I think Blair Witch was the first movie that I remember film companies trying to market as an actual, like, found footage, this actually happened. Yeah. Because I remember at school, that's all everybody was talking about, was the fact that, oh, man, they, they got a hold of these tapes about these people that went into the woods and died and, and all this stuff. And I was the like... The hype for it, the marketing hype for it was incredible. Yeah, like, it really was. I was seriously stoked for it. And yeah. I was like, this is gonna be fucked. Yeah. And then we got tickets to see it. And the day that we went to go see it, I saw on Good Morning America while I was, I heard on Good Morning America in the other room while I was getting ready to go to school, the interview with the director and all the cast. Really? And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Hold up, man. <laughs> yeah. So then going into it, it, I was just like, oh, okay. Well, which, I mean, looking back now, I was a fucking idiot because, yeah. duh. Of course, it's just a regular movie, but I'm 13, 14 years old. I'm, I'm yeah. not going to know that then. If we're going to go best quote-unquote real found footage, Mm -hmm. I gotta go Paranormal Activity. Oh, yeah, me too. Even if you cut all the other ones out, as movie to movie, Mm -hmm. I think the first Paranormal Activity is it's more... It's the same fucking thing. But they just... They they tweaked it in the right spots and made it, like, actually scary. Yeah, I I think the sequels to Paranormal Activity... I look at one, two, and three as just one big movie. For one, it's very interesting that both of the sequels to the original film were actually prequels and continued to be a prequel, but it opens up into a much bigger universe and how they connected everything was so, from a writing standpoint, it was it was very well done. Yeah, I still need to finish them. I it's well, just the first three, four and five kind of tanked. They brought it home at the end pretty well. That's what I'm saying. I need to. I I 
watched. Honestly, I don't know. It's been so long since I've watched yeah. multiple of them. I still need to. I know I need to finish the whole series, but mm-hmm. it's so. It's I got hella ADD, and it's like, oh, I'm just gonna sit here and watch this one shot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's interesting the fact that the guy who created kind of this genre of films like that then went on to do Town of the Dreaded Sundown because they're so different. Watch Boggy Creek. They're not different at all. It's just okay. that I think he realized that maybe having local townsfolk as actors doesn't work. Right. It's interesting, but it's rough. <laughs> yeah. The thing that was shocking to me is I cannot believe that he filmed this movie in Texarkana yeah. where the original murders happened. Really crazy. I didn't know this, but apparently Texarkana was called uh, or was referred to as Little Chicago because of the crime. Wow. Yeah. Texarkana used to have five railroad companies stationed there. So there was a lot of traffic. It also had five highways that ran through the heart of the city. So it was a really busy town, which is really interesting because it's portrayed as this sleepy little southern town. Well, I think it was a sleepy little southern town, but I don't think that the town itself was very big. I think it had a very transient population. On top of that, there's also three different states that are involved in the jurisdictions of shit. Yeah. Dude, it's just a breeding ground for serial killers. Right, and I also think that one of the reasons why they were probably okay with them filming the movie there was was mainly because everybody who lived there, apparently, if, you're, if your town is nicknamed Little Chicago, then violence shouldn't. It's not going to... Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. H- however, the, the actual fate of murders, like, I mean, the whole town was completely, like, terrified. They're absolutely fucking terrified. But them turning around and making a movie about it, I don't think it was viewed as offensively as I thought it would have been because the portrayal of that town was different than what it was. I think we also have a very, like, our frame of reference for what the town would be is based entirely off of, for me, three or four movies. So, Town That Dreaded Sundown, obviously. Also, The Town That Dreaded Sundown, (laughs) which, you know, because... Yeah. They just decided to, I don't, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that yeah. in a minute. Uh, a little bit of Boggy Creek mm-hmm. and then Smoking the Bandit. Yeah, of course. But Smoking the Bandit is like one scene where they burglarize a beer depot and drive off. So Yeah, very different. <laughs> yeah. And also the movie makes it out like they freaked out, but we don't really know if they freaked out because apparently the old timer on the commentary mm-hmm. said that nobody really reacted over the first The first two murders. Yeah. Well, the first one wasn't a murder. Right. The first one was just an attack. After the second attack, that's when people started to be like, hold on, wait a minute. And then by the the third one, then the whole town fucking erupted. And there were parents that literally sent their kids away for years. I was going to ask that because Andy Prine said that. And I was like, did you find in your research that they actually absolutely? Yeah. That's crazy. All of the local like hardware stores and I guess home decor stores all ran out of blinds and lumber stores ran out of wood because people were making yeah. sure that their windows and everything was covered. You couldn't see inside. Look, honey, I put I put up five different blinds. <laughs> That's good, honey. He ain't going to kill us. There was one lady who I found where, and this is smart, she took rope and... She lives in a two-story house. Her bedroom was all Mm. the way up at the second story in the back of the house. She ran rope 
from her front door, tied the rope around the door handle in her front door, strung it along throughout her house upstairs and tied it to her bedpost. So that way, if somebody tried to break in and pull the door open, her bed would jerk and she would she would wake up. Texarkana had some Kevin yeah. McAllisters yeah. in that shit. That's that, Southern, that's that Southern intelligence right there. That's that Southern uh-huh. home alone. Uh-huh. But yeah, the, the whole town went absolutely apeshit because it's 1946, man. That stuff yeah. doesn't happen back then. No, I mean, Zodiac, which... That was 1968, 69? Yeah, he had to have been influenced by this, right? I think he was. You know, I, I watched a documentary uh, online where a couple guys were asked that same question. And one of the guys made a actually actually made a pretty decent point where serial killers are so... It's so personal. Mm-hmm. You know, the act of what they do is so personal to them. And it's kind of difficult to imagine a serial killer being inspired by another serial killer because the act of what they're doing is so wrapped up in what their personal urge is. However, I'm going to call bullshit because every serial killer that I've heard of from those eras was inspired by pulp books, which is just about other serial killers or depicting fictional serial killers. You know, it's even when in Mindhunter, both the show and in the book, John Douglas, whenever he interviews son of Sam, the reason why he got Son of Sam to start talking was because he told him about the BTK killer who made reference that to Son of right. Sam as yeah. if he was inspired by Son of Sam. Yeah, and Son of Sam was stoked because that meant that it, he it actually had... Yeah. yeah, so I think what they were saying... Uh, in the documentary that I watched where certain serial killers, you know, it's difficult for those guys to make a connection of, you know, this serial killer is going to be inspired by somebody else or whatever. I think that that might be true for certain kinds of serial killers. Yeah. But it's got to be a specific thing. But for this case, I definitely think Zodiac was either had researched this case with the Phantom Killer or inspired by how he did things or something. Zodiac's whole thing is so theatrical that it's almost like if he didn't get it from somewhere else, like... My concept is that he got the idea of, oh, like I could go out and with a hood and kill some people and stuff and then like built off of it. Yeah. And eventually we'll do a Zodiac episode and dive deep, which yeah. is going to be a chore. But for this one, I think Zodiac took inspiration from this guy, the Phantom Killer, in different ways. I, I, there's something about, I mean, whenever you compare the two, they're the same. The first couple of yeah. attacks are legit, are pretty much the same. They're two, they first two Zodiac murders started at, or were at Lover's Lanes. Mm-hmm. The Phantom Killers, the first two of those were at Lover's Lanes. And at the same time, there's plenty of people who've, who've murdered people throughout the decades at Lover's Lane spots. But right. there's not a whole lot of them that wore, wore a bag on their head. <laughs> exactly. And- brutally beat the shit out of people yeah. and then disappeared and like fucked with exactly. everyone and there was just a general zeitgeist of put a bag on your head go to lover's lane and kill some teenagers that was the 60s and the 50s and the 70s and the 40s and the 40s and, the 40s and the- for anybody who doesn't know the phantom killings happened in texarkana in 1946 in february it started in february in 1946 and the first attack neither of the kids died And I didn't know this until I started researching it uh, the other day. They were only at that. They only parked their car for 10 to 15 minutes before they were attacked. And they were in the middle of nowhere. Wow. So Yeah, they were on a dirt road. There was a paved road at the end of that dirt road where eventually Mm. the girl ran down and was able to flag down a car. And that's why the guy bailed. But that has to mean that this dude is just hanging out in some trees 
with a sack over his head, just waiting. Yeah, pants around his ankles. He's just he's just waiting. Yeah, he's just waiting. He's just ready. The Zodiac attacked people, you know, at Lover's Lanes too, but his was was done in a much more like sophisticated manner, I guess you could say. But yeah, so this the first attack was was just on those two. He makes them both get out of the car, just like in the movie. Tells the guy to take his pants down, mm-hmm. just like uh, uh, they show they they recreated in the uh, the sequel to Town at Dreaded Sundown. And yeah, I, honestly, I gotta say, I like the sequel more. I'm with you. The, the the kills are much more brutal, but which makes sense. Yeah. It's 2014 compared to 1976. Yeah, and it's got just a more even, like, demeanor to it. Like, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it's not jumping back and forth between brutal murder and slapstick comedy. Yeah. But then after he makes the people get out of the car, he makes the guy take his pants down and then cracks him inside the back of the head. And then he tells the girl to run. And right. and it's just to to fuck with her. Just because yeah. I mean he, he he chases her down a second later and then he assaults her with his gun and and all this stuff and then somehow she gets free and and runs to safety. But it's hard to wrap my brain around somebody doing that in 1946. I know that it shouldn't, but it's just weird. And then the second attack was with again another couple. Here's the weird thing about this one: this dude was 29 and he was dating a 17 year old. Unfortunately, that was not weird in the 40s. <sighs> It is fucking weird yeah, it's like, now. Come on, man. But the second attack is very strange. And any for anybody who hasn't read Mindhunter, like I know the show is incredible, but read the book. The book is yeah, incredible. It's a, it's a really great book. And all of John Douglas's books are are, are amazing. They're yeah. they're not only scary as fuck, but they're filled with so much interesting knowledge and perspectives of human psychology. Yeah. But one of the elements of the second crime is so uniquely different from are any of the elements from the other attacks, either the first one or the two that come after it, because they believe that he killed a girl outside of the car because they found a, um, a blanket covered in blood. Mm-hmm. If he killed her outside of the car, then that means he had to have repositioned her body afterwards, mm-hmm. and he placed her in the backseat of the car, laid her straight with her arms down, and put her face down against the backseat. So he clearly didn't want her watching what he was doing. Exactly. There was no sexual assault or anything ever, right? I couldn't find if he did. So it, you, you hit the nail on the head of the only reason why killers do that type of thing is because they don't want to be seen. Yeah. Quote unquote scene. Yeah, even if that person's dead, it doesn't matter to them. It's still they're being watched, yeah. you know. So he places the the body of the girl face down in the or the back seat of the car, and then he takes the man and he places him in between the front seats. So his body is on the floor in between the front seats and the back seat, and he leans his body forward in between the seats, and he takes the guy's hands and he puts them like he's praying. Weird. Very strange. I knew about him moving the bodies. I didn't know that he positioned him so he was praying. Yeah. What sucks is that the case is unsolved, so there's never yeah. any, any, like, that's it. Like, we don't we don't get a follow-up on nah. what the symbolism is. To me, that's, you think of Texarkana, it's the South. There's so much religion. So to me, that's that has to, well, it doesn't have to. It could represent anything. But to me, the first thing that comes to mind is obviously shame and kind of regret. But here's the thing. Is it shame for himself or is he, and now this is a very Jason Voorhees take on it, so I don't, I don't think this is how actual serial killers think usually, but there is usually some sort of weird sexual component 
So I wonder if it was like he was punishing them for being sexual. Promiscuous. Or promiscuous, yeah. Yeah, which absolutely makes sense considering the fact that it's the South in the 1940s. Yeah. So that's the second. That's the first murder, the second attack. Yeah. And then the okay. third one is with a 16-year-old boy and a, and a 15-year-old girl. And they were coming home from, I believe it was either a band practice because they were in the high school band or a concert that they performed at their school. In the movie, it's a dance, right? Yeah, the concert was was for a dance. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. But no, nobody knows how they ended up being abducted because they, they drove away in the guy's car. Mm-hmm. But yet they were found the next day where the car was on the side of the road. The boy's body was found... I want to say like four or five miles away and he was shot. Was it, was it near a lover's lane? No. Interesting. Yeah. And then um, the car was found four or five miles away. The boy was found shot like multiple times, just thrown on the side of the road. And then the girl's body was found near a tree, like miles away and just in a field. Was she tied to it? Cause there's a couple things that I want to ask questions about that I feel like this is this is about the right time to. Uh, no, she was. Uh, from what I in my notes, I didn't see anything that suggested that she had been tied to the tree. In the movie, she is correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. In the original movie, which was <laughs> seventy, what was it? Seventy six. Seventy six. So in the original movie in 1976, she is tied to a tree, which <laughs> is already fucked up. Yeah. Also, I'm pretty sure that True Detective paid homage to it because the very first body that they find, mm-hmm. she's tied to the tree and has shit on her back like crazy. Right. She's like scarred or something. I can't. It's like a tattoo or something. Yeah, weird yeah. symbols and shit. So that's got to be. That has to be an homage. There's, yeah. I've never yeah. seen that in anything else. Yeah, either. not that specific. More importantly, was there actually a killing in the Phantom Killer killings? That's weird. Where he killed somebody with a trombone. No. Is there anything that ever led anyone to even consider that he may have killed somebody with a trombone? Not at all. So that is just some shit that Charles B. Pierce was like, we're going to have to kill a lady with a trombone. And everyone's like, wait, what? And he's like, it, 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 look, it just makes sense. And everyone's like, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> we're going to do it anyway. All right, fine. But yeah, they like I said, they were part of the high school band. Right. So I don't, I can't remember what. Um, I didn't see exactly what instrument she played. But Pierce probably, in his crazy brain, probably was like, "Oh, she's a trombone player." And then I bet what you could do with the trombone. He's like, well, "I'm not gonna do the mental gymnastics to try and piece that one together. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. It doesn't make sense. It's well, one of the on. most ridiculous killings I've ever seen in a slasher film. In the movie, it's her trombone for sure." Because I was, all, I, personally, I thought that he brought the trombone with him. Oh, no, no, no. Because that's a much funnier image to me. That is a hilarious Just the Phantom idea. Killer with the fucking bag over his head. Which, can we go ahead and just say that Jason totally stole the bag on the head thing? Oh, yeah. They used, I think they've admitted that they... They damn sure better have, because it's great. I mean, it works. Yeah, it totally works. But, yeah, so just... Him and his cute little overalls and his fucking adorable little little sack on his head. And he's just traipsing through the fucking woods with a trombone. And in that scene, what's so funny is you can see the Phantom literally look at the trombone and he's like, huh, I bet I could kill somebody with this. And then he starts trying to play it and no sound comes out. I think he also takes and takes note of the fact that like this isn't stabby enough. It's very rounded. 
<laughs> the most I'm going to do is bruise somebody. Better duct tape a fucking knife to it. Much stabbier. Much better, Phantom. Good job. So strange. Gold I star. I remember when we watched the sequel to this movie, mm-hmm. we watched the sequel before we watched the original. That's something I wanted to bring up because I don't remember the original movie ever being on my radar as a kid until the remake came out and then mm-hmm. suddenly it was everywhere. Yeah, and that's because, I mean, it was it made the, the rounds at drive-in theaters and, right. and grindhouse theaters and shit, and it terrified fucking everyone right i knew about last house on the left which is far worse than this but it was because when it got into the 80s the companies who distributed on vhs i think they did one one or two releases of it i have one of them but i i I, even now i can't find the big box version of it on vhs Mm. because it's so rare and i think they did one run of so it just didn't get the attention yeah it it went fucking nowhere and then what they started to do in the 90s was it started to play late at night on certain stations and somehow i never saw it yeah i never got it either maybe once i was a teenager i started to hear about it you know me like i was befriending video store employees just yeah. to find new new movies and shit and never once anyone ever yeah. brought it up until it's not a remake it's not really a sequel because it's outside of the universe of the first movie. Which I think is a great idea. Here's the thing. As a movie, it's amazing. Trying to explain it to anyone is impossible. Because <laughs> it is a movie that takes place in 2014. Yes. But it is... First off, it's great. Please go watch the remake. It needs more It's love. not a remake. It's just a sequel. Yeah, I know, but I have to call it a remake because it has the same fucking name. <laughs> it's, they did the same thing that, that they did with Thing. You know what, man? I'm going to take it even further and say they didn't because it's a completely new thing. At, yeah. least, at least the Thing is still in... No matter what you think about the Thing remake slash prequel, it's still in the Thing universe. Right. It's still the same, like... yeah world yeah this one got super meta so the concept is that the phantom killings are real which they are Mm -hmm. and the movie that came out in 1976 is a movie that came out in this universe of the of the 2014 town that dreaded sundown yes the town that dreaded sundown 2014 examines for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. the impact of that movie coming out in Mm -hmm. a place where the killings took place. Yeah. And now every year on Halloween, which this is such a great idea. Why can we not live somewhere where they do this? This is so good. Every year on Halloween, they screen the original town that dreaded sundown from 1976 Mm -hmm. at a drive-in or some shit. And it's always like super DIY and super independent. And it's just because people are fucked up. But supposedly because of that or because people are starting to forget about the killings or something mm-hmm. they i, I kind of don't entirely first off i don't entirely want to spoil it although i don't think i can because yeah. it's hard to explain <laughs> yeah it's it, yeah halfway through the movie it gets a little muddy yeah i like every other aspect of this movie yeah i think that it improves on most of the things in the original mm-hmm. but the ending is too quick yeah, it is. It is quick. like it's like, oh, here's what happened. Up oh, now, they're both dead. Ha <laughs> ha. Go on. <laughs> right. End of end of movie. And it's yeah. like, wait, hold on. I didn't get to like enjoy the the plot twist really. And I didn't get the chance to process it. Yeah, it was like, wait. So who were they? 
from what I remember, I just watched it last night, and while yeah, I was watching it, I was still like, yeah. wait, 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 what? Yeah. Um, from what I gathered, I, I want to say that the killer in the sequel happens to be a son or a grandson of, I want to say, one of the suspects of mm-hmm. the original murders in 1946. Right. And his dad was fucking dissected into a bunch of pieces by a train i i don't know i don't know (laughs) (laughs) and what's what sucks is that this is a recommendation go watch it yes yes it's still very good you know what go watch it and you send us what you think happened right yeah please (laughs) (laughs) somebody please yeah but i remember when we watched the sequel when the scene came up where they re he reenacts the trombone killing i could not process what the fuck was going on because there was we had we had no reference yeah it's one of my favorite horror movie moments because i was like what yeah what what is good why why and here and here's the (laughs) thing is like yeah the first time that we watched it we had no frame of reference so i'm assuming a lot of the jokes and stuff went over our heads yes like uh the dude that plays the cop in the sequel lone wolf lone wolf but here's the thing in the sequel he's completely pointless completely he doesn't he shows up makes some jokes forces everyone to call a lone wolf which is fucking hilarious and then everyone else solves the case without him yeah he's a completely pointless character that's the i ate the whole plate guy right yeah yeah from transformers i really wish that they had actually done more with him yeah me too he's so good and like i don't hate the guy in the first one he's fine yeah man i would love to see anthony anderson just be the most like overly confident badass texas ranger yeah i w- I'm, I'm i'm all for it but going back to the original killings the fourth crime or the fourth attack it's actually questionable if it was him or not and i can absolutely see that which i like because then it mirrors zodiac's situation yeah. even more because i yeah. question if all of those attacks were the zodiac too yeah same i don't i don't believe it this just popped into my head as, as we're having this conversation is because Texarkana was so transient, mm-hmm. I bet it was just somebody who wasn't even like, yeah. didn't live there. I bet that there's probably the possibility that you could look around the country and find some other Phantom Killer killings. Oh, yeah, for sure. Every once in a while, I'll go down the Zodiac rabbit hole online and some of the some of the message boards that I end up reading through um I mean, it's legit. People have have sacrificed marriages. People have lost careers. People have gone homeless. People have lost all of spent all of their money. People have gone absolutely out of their minds researching the Zodiac case. Hey, man, you got to sacrifice to find the truth, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's interesting to me is when you look at that and, and you know what? Thankfully, they do it because it's interesting to read about yeah. because they do find a lot of those people do find interesting facts. It just leads nowhere. It's just debatable as to whether they're actually facts. facts. Yeah, exactly. And with this or with the Phantom Killer, the last attack was on a older couple and the husband was just like in the movies. It's the one in the house. Right. The Just like in both of the films, the husband is sitting on the chair and... The first film is more accurate, but yeah. he's sitting there watching TV or reading the paper and the Phantom Killer shoots him through the window. And then as the wife comes down the stairs and comes into the room, he shoots her twice in the face. Yeah. And she survives, which is insane. But after she gets shot, she lands on the ground. And one of the creepiest 
things is the phantom goes to the back of the house and he gets stuck trying to break down the back door. And so he's hacking his way just with his hands through the door as she's trying to crawl away out the front door. He breaks through the door with his hands. Doesn't have an axe, doesn't have a, a big weapon or anything. He literally tears apart the door. So he's trying to get in. Yes. So she makes it out of the house and she runs through a field to a neighboring farmhouse. Yeah. And then she made it to the house and then within minutes, all of the houses in in the yeah. area, everybody had guns and everybody was searching for the guy. Yeah. And nobody ever found him. But what's interesting is change in, one, the location. Mm-hmm. It's no, it's not a lover's lane murder yeah. or a location. It's somebody's house. Two, it's a completely different age grouping of people. It's an older right. couple, not a, te- not a younger couple. Three, they're not engaging in anything. They're just yeah. hanging out at home. And one of the biggest things is the fourth attack used a different gun than yeah. the other ones. And here's the thing is that it's Texarkana, so I'm assuming guns are probably pretty very easy to get. Yeah. And going by normal serial killer traits and, and stuff, it does kind of make sense if, you know, he got conf- he was getting away with it. Mm-hmm. So maybe he got confident and that was the beginning of his berserker thing. And then when 20 fucking houses full of dogs and guns come out, he was like, oh, shit, maybe it's time to go. <laughs> but I mean, it's hard to say. Like, it could also be a completely different person. And that's what sucks is like, we're never going to know. Yeah. Usually with serial killers, they have a specific profile of people that they target. Right. T- technically, it was a couple. I mean, true, but it's a we. It's so strange to go from three couples to you know, like a middle aged couple hanging out at home. But that's assuming that the mo is he wants to kill kids and or younger people, and maybe it's true. not. Maybe he just wants to kill couples. Maybe I mean that could be very well you know the case, and you could also throw into the mix that at that point, all of the cops in the town were staking out Lover's Lane spots. Exactly. So just like in the film, which is hilarious, which is weird that it's there's a scene, again, that's that funny in this Dude, film. It's, like, it's, it's brutal murder, hilarious slapstick, and not even necessarily hilarious slapstick, right. just slapstick. Yeah, I felt like I was watching things that like emulated like Don Knotts like Not- yeah. era comedy, which that's is strange. probably actually it. Yeah. And so in the just like in the film, the cops, they would park their cars in various lovers lane spots. And one of the deputies was dressed as a woman. Yeah. To try and lure this guy out. And the scene is hilarious in the movie. But that may have been the reason why if the fourth attack was the same guy, maybe that is why he changed his uh, maybe that's why he changed it up. Which it's upsetting because I think Sparkplug looked very fetching in that dress. He looked. He great. really did. He really he, did. He pulled off that color. Yeah. It also makes sense if it isn't him because a town that has a ton of railroads going in and out of it, a number of major highways running in and out of it. Whenever you look back at the history of serial killers, the one of the reasons why they started to explode in 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 like the, starting in the forties was the interstate yeah we finished building interstates honestly it makes me think a lot about the west memphis three yes because that's clearly what happened those oh yeah absolutely yeah i i'm pretty sure if you're listening to our podcast that you're 
you understand that the West Memphis Three didn't kill anyone and they were just... That's a case where I have a hard time researching it because it pisses me off so much. Yeah, because I've been the goth kid that the cops have stopped to talk to for no reason. When I read Damien's book, the night that he got arrested, the scene of him hanging out reminded me of, oh yeah, that's what I was doing at 14 years old. We were just hanging out listening to to Slayer and watching movies. I never killed a small child the entire time. Never. (laughs) Never. I never even had the urge to kill a small child. And and especially with the West Memphis Three, the fact that they ignored and never investigated the one suspect that ran into, I want to say it was a KFC, um, nearby an interstate. Mm -hmm. And the guy comes in and he's just drenched in blood. Mm -hmm. And he goes into the bathroom to clean off and the worker's cleaned the bathroom why did they not call the cops call yes i i can't remember i, I i'd have to research it again but by the time that the they, yeah they cleaned the blood so there was so much stuff surrounding that case where yeah. it's obvious that they're not them but going back to what you were saying i mean you look at ted bundy and there you could keep going down the line of yeah. the interstates allowed so many of those guys to be able to get away from get away with that it's long been my assumption that there's a lot of serial killers that are just overland truck drivers like oh yeah truck drivers yeah like i mean truck drivers are i've had very few shitty incidents with truck drivers usually they're very helpful but you know it is a good cover (laughs) yeah now as far as for anybody who has never heard about this case but have seen the movies just like in the movies the guy gets away yeah in a glory all right, we're going to take a moment here because we're at the end of the first movie. So, as we said, Andy Prine wrote the end of this movie. The guy who plays the sheriff in the original movie, mm-hmm. uh, apparently when they started the movie, there was no ending. None. So he wrote the ending, and it's not really a spoiler because, you know, he gets away. That's mm-hmm. how the fucking case goes. But the end of the movie, Andy wrote a fucking epic, epic shootout. In slow motion. In slow motion, which absolutely was to fill time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It does look good, though. But it's a solid shootout. I'm pretty sure they're actually shooting a train. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And the Phantom Killer jumps in front of the moving train, Mm -hmm. which, knowing this production, he actually did that. Yes. And then the sheriff and uh, Lone Wolf, uh, they just unload every bullet that they have at this train. But I will say, this is this is not a knock on the movie. This is me genuinely just loving the independent spirit of let's fucking make a movie. In those shots, it, they don't even try to hide it. There's just straight up a cameraman on the back of that train. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> you know that they were like, we got this train for one run. Right. <laughs> Set up every fucking camera, and we're going to get every shot right goddamn now. Yeah. So, branching off of that same thing, I, I was thinking the exact... Same, like, holy shit, man, these dudes were just going for it. Dude, it was so gung-ho. Uh, in the scene where the Phantom Killer attacks uh, the couple by sneaking up to the side of the car, and he really? latches onto the car, but you yeah. don't know it after he drives, after the guy starts driving away, and then all of a sudden the Phantom Killer starts attacking, hanging off the side of the car. Yeah. That entire scene, you can envision the conversation being like, all right, man, so what we're going to do is 
he's just going to floor it, right? And he's just going to floor it in, out here in this field, and he's just going to go for it. Now, what you're going to do, you're going to hold on to that fucking door, man. Hold you on like G. Williger Christ, because uh-huh. otherwise you're going to fucking die. You're going to die, look, bud. We ain't getting no bodies on this shoot, No, nope, we got one shot at this, so you're going to hold on. One fucking shot. And we just gonna we just gonna war with you. We about. just gonna go. We yeah, just we just gonna it. go. We gonna film it. one take, and and it's like holy shit. Let me. He's legitimately just holding on for dear life as this dude does donuts in this. He's wearing a bag over his head, so you know he's like, I don't know, man. I don't know if that's the best idea. I don't know, man. My growth's not that good. I gotta hit the window too. What about the glass and the nothing? All right, fuck it. All right, go. <laughs> That is just such a testament to, I guess, the era. Charles B. Pierce wanted to fucking make a movie. Exactly. <laughs> so he fucking made a movie. I love the shots that are clearly just, they set a camera rolling and then just sped down a muddy road. Yes. And just were like, fuck it. Yeah. Dude, those look so dangerous. They they really do. That's a good segue into some of the notes that I was taking while I was watching this movie was... There's a certain vibe about the horror films in the 1970s that are so, they're so interesting. Like all of the horror films in the 70s broke so much new ground. Yeah. I think that it comes from the fact that you couldn't just do whatever the fuck you wanted to. You really had to think about what you were doing because you were so limited with the technology and with the effects. And clearly there wasn't any computer shit yet. No. And like, so you could only do what you could film. That really limits what you can do. So it really grounds everything in reality because you're like, this could happen because if it couldn't, they wouldn't have filmed it. Exactly. And I think that caused filmmakers to expand in a way where they started to tell stories that that were different yeah because you you had to drive it with story because otherwise you were like okay we can't just fill this in with special effects and make it look pretty and make people although there are plenty of movies that tried to do just that and you know what love them too but yeah but in that era not only did you have a lot of intense exploitation films but you had the biker genres that were yeah. depicting countercultures that terrified America. And then you also had started to have weird shit like Cannibal Holocaust and I Drink Your Blood and a lot of really ultra violent films that started to depict either a total opposite way of life in America involving crime or just straight up shocking murder. Yeah. And I think it's just not what the country was used to. And all of a sudden you started having these films. And I know we talked about this in the TCM episode, but mm-hmm. the reaction to these films, it obviously hit because people started watching them. Yeah. It makes me wonder how much of it is actually related to the live footage for Vietnam, because obviously we weren't alive for Vietnam, but that's the one thing that I keep, that keeps yeah. coming up across all these seventies, these iconic seventies movies. They started showing Vietnam shit. So it, there was death everywhere, and I wonder how much of it was like, well, the Vietnam footage is getting a lot of good ratings. Maybe if we put that shit into a movie. Yeah, maybe. The the Vietnam War, the, the coverage of that war, that is exactly why we have the media that we do today. Absolutely. That, yeah. I mean, the, the ratings, and they made so much money covering, yeah. covering the shocking nature of, of that war that after the war ended, that's whenever the nightly news started only covering all of the crime because they wanted to keep up the same ratings. 
and I think that the 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 young filmmakers that were entering the 70s and started to make movies, I think they were carrying along with them a lot of the social tension that they had grown up around in the 50s and 60s Absolutely. with the Cold War, yeah. um, the political corruption, obviously the war in Vietnam. Then when the Manson murders happened, it's like everyone who paid attention suddenly just woke up to the fact that America was just this, like the America dream or, or the idealized portrait of America was just a charade. Yeah. And I think they started making films that were a more accurate representation of how crazy things either are or can be. And they started shoving it into people's faces. Yeah. That's when they woke up to it. And we've just been in sleep paralysis ever fucking since. Yeah. To even go further, I started to realize that, Another element that you start to see in 70s horror is that you start to see the I, the themes of outsiders like invading your homes or places that we saw, thought were safe. Yeah, it's because it's partially from the whole military, industrial, whatever shit, you know, us constantly be propagandized for war and like everyone is the other except for the fucking Americans. But also I remember home invasion being a fucking huge thing. Yeah. Like, they kept fucking hammering it. Yeah, dude. Home Invasion was such a big, big, like, oh, like, Home Invasion, Home Invasion, mm -hmm. Home Invasion. And it's like... Looking back, I think some of... I think a large portion of that was the paranoia and the hysteria that some of these films caused... Absolutely. ...conservative America. I mean, like, like we said in Texas, like... They used to just let people in their houses, right. and then that came out, and they were like, "Fuck you!" Yeah, <laughs> you start back with Black Christmas in nineteen, I think, nineteen seventy-four. Mm -hmm. uh, Black Christmas, Halloween, Last House on the Left, Town of the Dreaded Sundown, TCM. Although Texas Chainsaw Massacre is kind of what happens when you run into the outsider. Yeah, y you know what I mean. You are the outsider. Now. Yeah, exactly. But those other films are the outsider coming to get you. Yeah, and. It's almost like Bob Clark and Carpenter and Wes Craven and these directors were kind of like, hey, all of you leave it to beaver types. That's not real. This yeah. is real. And I'm going to yeah. scare the fuck out of you with it. The reality is somewhere in between. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, of course. But I'm going to take those fears and I'm going to just blow them up and I'm going to terrify the entire country. And it fucking worked. It did. Yeah. And realizing that. Gave me a lot of uh, a newfound respect for all of those filmmakers because oh, yeah, not absolutely. only is that groundbreaking in terms of filmmaking and story, but it's like a revolutionary act, period. Dude, Last House on the Left is it's every fear of the American family put into one movie. Yeah. It's fucking fucked up, man. Yeah. It's beyond words intense. Yeah. I also thought that it was interesting that looking back into the 70s, this is when we started to see movies that relied on the based on a true story element yeah pretty much all of them yeah because pierce didn't just say this was inspired by a true story he literally put on the one sheet it's a true story and you know what he's the only one that actually could say it yeah although he definitely made he took some creative, oh no he embellished the shit out yeah, of it but at least yeah. like at least it was a real thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, we had Psycho in 1960, and that was inspired by Ed Gein. And, but like. But it's so, like, far from actual Ed Gein. Actually, you know what? Bates might actually be the closest to Ed Gein because he just wanted to put on a dress, man. Yeah. Just yeah. Let, the, let the dude wear a dress. Honestly, my favorite part of The Town of the Dreaded Sundown is, is in both of the, in both the original and the sequel, is how intense 
that dude is. Yeah. Even with just his breathing, when you just watch him breathe in and out and watch the the breath the bag. Dude, it's fucking intense. You know what sucks is I don't even know who played him. He was just a stunt guy named Bud. That's crazy. Yeah. There's something about the way they chose to frame the shots of the dude's eyes. Yeah. Of how like like every time you see him or every time there's a close up, his eyes are really wide, like he's a, like his head's about to explode with rage. I was looking up things about this movie and I was I was finding comments left from people who watched this movie back in 1976 in theaters. Oh, nice. And every single one of them, the same thing with, with TCM. Most people couldn't get it, get past the, the first scene. Really? I, that, you know what? I actually, I accept that more for this one than t- yeah. TCM because for TCM, it was the credits and the credits are just weird. Like, yeah, they're kind of gross sounding, but like the opening scene for the original town that dreaded sundown is fucked up. It's also the way that it's shot where it doesn't cut away from any of the action. Yeah. Like it shows every fucking little bit and it shows it close. Yeah, it's very intimate. I love how it's like all this fucking like super crazy, intense, violent action. And then it cuts to the shot of just the back of the car and then all the music cuts. And then you just hear the shuffling in the car. Then he gets out and walks away and closes the car door. And then you just sit with it for a second. Yeah. And then the fucking like title shit comes up and you're like, oh, (laughs) okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a lot the fact that at the end of this movie, there's no resolution. Yeah. From everything that I could find for people who watched it back then, it was fucking horrifying. The fact that, like, what happened to this guy? Where is he? I mean, I don't know for sure, but I would wager that this is probably one of the first movies where the bad guy gets away. Yeah, Especially one of the first horror movies. So when I dug into theories surrounding who the Phantom Killer actually was, because obviously he was, the cases were unsolved and they just stopped. After Ted the last Cruz? murder. Ted, Ted, Ted Cruz, number one. <laughs> right. That's that's the link. Ted Cruz is from Texas. He was the phantom killer in 1946. And then he moved to California, mm-hmm. became the Zodiac killer, drank some more baby blood. Yes. And now he's whatever he's I don't, he's like a sack of flesh that talks or something. Yeah, whatever the fuck he is now. So there's two theories about who the phantom killer actually was. The first one is a guy named H.B. Tennyson. That's a fuck of a name. Right? So H.B. Tennyson, he was a college student who committed suicide. And in his suicide note, he apparently claimed that he was the Phantom Killer. Hmm. Now, what's weird is he was a usher at a local movie theater where some of the victims had been shortly before their death. And he was in the same high school band as Betty Jo, which is the third, third victim. Mm-hmm. And his one of his close friends happened to live with one of the victim's sister. So he had a close tie with a couple of the people who who were eventually attacked. But there's nothing else to go off of that. Yeah, I would say that in a town that small, even as busy as it was, I'm sure a lot of people had close ties. Right. Now, the next one is a little bit more concrete in certain ways, but not in a couple others. There's a guy named Yule Lee Sweeney, and... Him and his wife were arrested as suspects for this murder or for these murders. Cops started to notice that cars were started to be reported stolen and then later found abandoned around the time of each attack. Hmm. So cops started staking out areas where 
the cars were abandoned. Right. And areas kind of like alleyways and stuff like that, similar to where a lot of these cars were abandoned. Mm -hmm. And they ended up arresting Yule's wife. And then whenever they brought her in for questioning, she claimed right out of the gate that her husband was the one who committed the murders <laughs> and that she would hand over all this information and blah, 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 which sounds to me like that sounds like bullshit. She might be making it up to get yeah. off, you know? So so they eventually arrest him when he comes back into town and it never really goes anywhere because her statements, every time she gave a statement about one of the cases, the statement changed. Yeah. So it's all over the place. Yeah, that usually means full of shit. Right. However, the only thing that is really fucking strange about it is in one of her statements, she claims that she watched her husband take the 16-year-old boy's date book and just chucked it into a field and it landed by a, some bushes next to a tree. Mm -hmm. Nobody else knew that because the sheriff is the only one who found the book and that Whoa. wasn't in a police report. So no, that hadn't been reported. Nobody else knew about it. Her and the sheriff were the only two people that knew about that date book. Hmm. So that's fucking interesting. Which attack was it? It was the, the, the band kids. So, I mean, maybe they killed them. Maybe. And then the other, the other two or the first two, maybe there could have been three different murders yeah. or murderers. You know, there could have been multiple. Nobody knew a description of, yeah, the, exactly. of the killer. That only came from the first, uh, the first attack where they said that the guy had a bag over his head. That's it. Yeah. So again, it could have been somebody totally different. Crazy. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. The, all of the evidence was just circumstantial, so they couldn't charge him on that. So they got him for uh, Grand Theft Auto. They gave him, I think, like 20 years. He served that. I think he escaped from prison once or twice, got a couple years added onto his sentence, got out of jail, stole another car, went back to jail, Got out in the 70s, I think oddly in time for this movie to come out, and <laughs> <laughs> and then ended up dying in 1994 in a retirement home, I want to say in Florida, and that wow. was it. So very odd to think if that was him that you can murder a bunch of people in 1946 and then... And you'll still spend your final years in hell. <laughs> right, that is the state. Yeah. 